Please open with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and follow along as I read beginning in verse 1. Now I do not want you to be unaware, brothers and sisters, that our ancestors were all under the cloud, all passed through the sea, and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. They all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. Nevertheless, God was not pleased with most of them since they were struck down in the wilderness. Now these things took place as examples for us so that we will not desire evil things as they did. Don't become idolaters as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and got up to party. Let us not commit sexual immorality as some of them did. And in a single day, 23,000 people died. Let us not test Christ as some of them did and were destroyed by snakes. And don't complain as some of them did and were killed by the destroyer. These things happened to them as examples, and they were written for our instruction on whom the ends of the ages have come. So whoever thinks he stands must be careful not to fall. No temptation has come upon you except what is common to humanity. But God is faithful. He will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able. But with the temptation, he will also provide a way out so that you may be able to bear it. It's quite a passage. Israel experienced the blessing of God's care. If we think back, as we're introduced there in the first five verses of chapter 10, this warning from Israel's past. And they had experienced the blessing of God's care. They had experienced his deliverance from where? The bondage of Egypt. They had experienced his leadership, right? They had experienced God's leadership, his covering. There they are, under the cloud. They had experienced his protection. And interestingly, right, we just jumped out of Corinthians a few weeks ago, went into Exodus account here. And they had experienced his protection, how? Through the sea. They experienced his provision, how? They were feeding them. He was faithful to do all these things. All at the depth, when we think about their feeding, all at the depth of their spiritual need. At the core of their identity and desires, their wants, their aspirations, these ancestors, ancestors referenced here in chapter 10 of 1 Corinthians to the early church, right? They were all satisfied and sustained regardless of the desert that they were in. God was manifesting his love, his care, his deliverance, his leadership, his protection, his provision, all in all these different ways, right? Yet, what we read in verse 5, it says God was not pleased with most of them since they were struck down in the wilderness. And then verse 6, we are told, these things took place as examples for who? For us. Why? So that we will not desire evil things as they did. That's what the text says. So why did this happen? Why did God see to it that all these things were preserved for us in the scriptures? And the answer is, it's for our sanctification. Or more directly, just as the text says here, so we will not desire evil things as they did. Right? I've heard people criticize the preaching of the word 
that emphasizes man's response to God. They are looking for, so they say, a message that puts the glory of Christ on display, a message that talks about the sovereignty of God, the work accomplished in our justification, the gift of his grace, and the final glorification that will be ours because of Christ. And so they say, we must focus here and not so much on man's response. For if the picture is properly painted of the majesty of God and the provision of his grace, we should not have to talk much about our sin, about our failure, for that will take care of itself. Plus, that kind of talk will bring the church down. It's discouraging. But I would argue that if the picture is properly painted of the majesty of God and the provision of his grace, then we would be preoccupied with our response. We would be, if the picture is properly painted of the majesty of God and the provision of his grace, we would be preoccupied with our sanctification. And this preoccupation is not because of a low view of God, but because of a high view. I was talking with a man last year, and he informed me of what I call his struggle in this particular area, and my response was, I wonder how God would receive your editorial complaint for the scriptures that he has preserved for us are to be used to teach, correct, rebuke, and train us in righteousness. For it is God's will that we should be sanctified and ought to be preoccupied with our sanctification. 2 Timothy 3.16, 1 Thessalonians 4.3, on we could go. The scripture is filled with a preoccupation with our sanctification. And why did God write the Old Testament to us? One, to show us Christ. But how do we see Christ? We should ask ourselves this question as well. How do we see and understand our need for Christ? Well, the Old Testament puts on display for us the holiness of God. The Old Testament puts on display for us our need for Christ. Right? It puts on display for us by showing us the holiness of God puts on display for us good and evil. It tells us and warns us, this is God's world, and this is how you can go on with God in God's world and function according to his plan and his design for your life. And it tells us, the Old Testament tells us, this is what happens when you go against God's design, doesn't it? It outlines that. We see story after story and time after time and king after king and all throughout the lives of the Israelites. This is what happens when you go against God's design. This is what happens, as verse 6 says, when you desire evil things as they did. And so God writes this here in 1 Corinthians to the church as a reminder to the early church of Corinth and to us it seems to be saying there can be those, right, this text seems to be saying, as we've just read, it seems to be saying to us that there can be those who are part of the circle of God's provision, like the Israelites were there in the wilderness. There can be those who are part of the circle of God's provision, been acquainted with the majesty, acquainted with the glory, are drawn in by the beauty and deliverance of God, but are drawn back out by the tide of evil fleshly desires. 
And so he warns us, don't become, don't commit, don't test, don't complain. Let's look at some of these. If you're taking notes, I encourage you to look there at the back of your bulletin. You know, one reason why the church, we titled this series, our guide to church, this series, our guide to church trouble. One reason why the church is in so much trouble is because there has not been a preoccupation with our sanctification. There is a preoccupation with social issues. There is a preoccupation with politics. People are happy to sit down and sit around and wax on about the sovereignty of God and how kind Jesus was to die for us and secure our salvation. But start talking about how to respond to this sovereign and kind God. Start talking about how to cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh or how to bring holiness to completion in the fear of God. And they feel the conversation is becoming oppressive and man-centered. Here's the deal. It is because of God, his redemptive plan, his majestic power seen at the cross and resurrection. It is because of the cross we are able to be preoccupied with our sanctification. And it is because of the cross that we are to be able that we are able to be preoccupied with such a thing without fear, without condemnation, and with hope of genuine, ongoing transformation in our lives. Amen. The trouble in the church today is an unwillingness to receive a passage like 1 Peter 1.14, where we are told, as obedient children, do not be conformed to the desires of your former ignorance. But as the one who called you is holy, you also are to be holy in all your conduct. For it is written, be holy because I am holy. The guide to trouble in the church is not make the same mistake, right? The guide to trouble in the church is to not, here in our text, is to not make the same mistake the ancestors made by cultivating appetites for evil. Instead, cultivate an appetite for good things, and God who is faithful will enable you, church, to stand up under the weight of temptation's appeal. That is the text. We see that conclusion even in verse 13 of chapter 10. So think of your faith now this morning. Think of your commitment to Christ. Think of your baptism. I think that's what Paul is doing here in these first five verses. Highlighting Israel's start with God. He even used the term baptism. And he's getting them to think, right? Look at Israel's start with God. It was good. It was rich. It had some early growing pains, but God saw them through. And I think what Paul is wanting the church in Corinth to do here, and what we, he is wanting us to do, right, is to think, wants us to think of our start with God, right, of our start with his church, of our baptism even, where we made that commitment to go all in for Christ. Just as they came under Moses, right, what happened? Well, they were delivered. And that deliverance is a picture of our deliverance in Christ. This is what our baptism communicates, right? It communicates his deliverance. It communicates our deliverance. It, it communicates what he achieved. And so because of what he achieved, then we also achieved. And this warning here, given in the context, shows you can have a good start, but that doesn't mean you will have a good finish. 
People often think Christ just showed up for Christmas. We see here in this text, it's interesting, isn't it? When you look there, it says in verse 4, And all drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them. Were you surprised to read, and that rock was Christ? Isn't that awesome? Right? See, some of us think that Jesus, or excuse me, that Christ just showed up for Christmas. Just showed up in the flesh. But the fact is, Christ was there at the beginning. He's creating at creation. He sustains it and holds it all together. We see this in Colossians. Christ is not, not just actively, here's what we can take away from that, that Christ is not just actively involved in the church. He was actively involved when the Israelites were in the wilderness. And what was he doing? Well, he was doing what he does. He was holding them together. That's what the text is telling us. He was sustaining them physically and spiritually, being their living water. Are you in the circle of God's provision? Acquainted with the majesty, acquainted with the glory, drawn in by the beauty and deliverance of God, don't get drawn out by the tide of fleshly evil desires. That's the message of this passage. Despite their start, despite their drinking from the rock, despite their being sustained by God the Father and Christ the Son, they were struck down, killed. And then we are given several reasons why, beginning in verse 6. They had set their hearts on evil things, cultivated an appetite for evil things. Cultivated an internal appetite for evil things. Church, do you know those things that you desire, that you are cultivating an appetite for those things? You see? It means you are training your mind and your heart to think in certain ways just by the things you set your mind and heart on. And that's what they were doing is they were cultivating an appetite not for the Lord, not for his provision, not for obedience, not for blessing that comes from God's hand, but they were cultivating an appetite for things that were evil. Verse 7, it says, and I suspect this is, of course, because of result of this, it goes hand in hand. But it says, verse 7, that they became idolaters. They became like the pagan culture around them. The culture that did not know God, they became like them. Right? The culture that had not experienced God's hand sustaining them. For those in the wilderness, for those in the church, this happens over time. This is the danger of growing up in a Christian home. I'd like all the ones that are under 18, maybe you're 18, you're still at home, maybe you're 20 and still at home, okay. But you think of it, if you're here this morning and you're a young person, I'm telling you, this morning, will you hear it, please, all the young people, will you hear it, that there is a danger of you growing up in a Christian home? Well, that's interesting, right? We always think all the positive things, because there is a lot of those, and I'd prefer that you grew up in a Christian home than not. But there is a danger in growing up in a Christian home. You know why? Because you can get real apathetic. You can get real critical. You can get real comfortable. And you can get and become real naive about sin. You can become naive about the values those, those people have in your surrounding culture. You can become naive about the values 
those people have who do not know God. And before long, you can drift. You can drift towards an attitude of, you know what? And please hear this. Please try to follow, young person. Right? You can drift towards an attitude of, you know, as I'm growing, right? Here I am now, 13, 14, 15, 16 years, 17. Now I'm really smart. Right? And I just realized the church has made too big a deal over some of these things. My parents have been too legalistic. And you know what? They start to throw, you start to become in this place where you start to throw things out. And you say things like, you know, I think the church and my parents, they've been too restrictive. And I don't want, and if God is good, he doesn't want this thing, this Christian thing to be restrictive on me, right? And then you drift, and you start drifting. Anybody been there before? And you start drifting and living to the beat of a godless society around you. Just as it is written here in verse 7, the people sat down to eat and drink, and they got up to party. It consumed their lives. This world's values, this world's systems, this world's desires, its lust, its appeals, it grabbed hold of them, and they went for it. They jumped all in. It consumed them. They ate and drank, and they got up to party, a night and day, night and day. But they didn't just happen overnight. They drifted into this place. I would say it's the story of my life. It's the story of my brother's life. It's the story of many raised up in the church. And praise God myself and my brother and others I know who spiraled into rebellion against God heard warnings from other Christians who pointed us to passages just like this. Don't become idolaters as some of them were. We have so many opportunities every day to indulge our flesh. Don't we? So many opportunities to indulge our flesh. We can and we will if we are not spiritually alert and careful. We will, you will, hear me, cultivate spaces in your heart for idolatry to spring up quickly. You see? It will spring up quickly. Just like coffee. It's like coffee. Right? When you taste it at first, right, you can think that's the worst stuff. How do mom and dad drink this garbage? Right? But over time, you keep sipping here and there, right? And over time, you end up loving the stuff, right? You won't go a morning without it. That's where I'm at. What pagan practices have you invited in? What have you been sipping on? You see, before you know it, it will soon become an acceptable beverage. And you'll down the whole thing. And he moves on in verse 8 saying, very plainly to the church, let us not be committed to sexual immorality as some of them did. Not much has changed. The nations around the Israelites, the culture around the church in Corinth, and the society that we live in today is filled with sexual promiscuity and immorality, isn't it? And God is clear, though. God is clear. He is not blaming society and cultural practices on anyone's behavior here in this text. Do you read that? Well, if it wasn't for that society you lived around, you don't see that. Right? It's very plain. These people experienced the sustaining power of Christ, yet 
they ran off into sexual immorality. Right? Guys, God was providing them, God was feeding them, and yet even still they ignored that provision and ran off into sexual immorality. And, and what I think we're reading here, what's clear that we're reading here, is that them running off to sexual immorality, that wasn't anyone's fault but their own. And so don't lie to yourself this morning, right? You are not dragged off into sexual immorality against your will, right? You go there willingly, right? You do not go there because you're dragged off by the scruff of your neck. You go willingly, don't we? Would you agree with that? And as a result of that decision, right, as a result of them drifting off away from God's plan, it says in verse 8, hear that, look at what it says. As a result of them drifting off, 23,000 people died as a result of this disobedience. Verse 9 gives another reason why they were struck down. So again, we are told, right, let us not test like they tested, as it says there. Let us not test Christ as some of them did and were destroyed by snakes. This is a reference to when the people spoke against Moses, saying, Why have you led us? And I'm in numbers, you don't have to turn there. But this passage here in 1 Corinthians 10 is a reference, to num a reference to Numbers 21, where it says there, the people complain, why have you led us up from Egypt to die in the wilderness? There's no bread or water, and we detest this wretched food. And what did God do? It says in verse 6 of Numbers 21, it says, then the Lord sent poisonous snakes among the people, and they bit them so that many Israelites died. And we are tempted to test God. We are tempted. Are you? Let's be honest this morning before the Lord. We are tempted to question God. But this is a very strong warning against that sort of thing. Which makes sense, doesn't it? It makes sense that God would warn us against this sort of thing. For God has gone through a great deal. Has done many Think of what he has done for us, what we have sung about. Has done many great and marvelous things, hasn't he? He has done many great and marvelous things. Why? In order to, for our good, in order to sustain us, in order to provide what is needed, in order to protect you, to lead you, to feed you. And so, to question this great shepherd of ours. And so to test him. To question him, even in our suffering, it is like thumbing your noses at him. The ungrateful arrogance, according to this text, it's clear, it displeases him. So much so that 23,000 were killed. Like the Israelites, God is clearly directing us with our faith in Jesus Christ. It's clear that even in suffering, he is at work, he has a purpose. He has a design. Now, we don't know what that is all the time in terms of the details, but we can rest like the Israelites. The cloud is there. The sea has been parted. The manna provided. Jesus, the perfect picture of God, isn't he? And how he is and how he will and how he has met every need of ours, holding us, sustaining us. The cross, 
right, more than a cloud, amen, right? The broken flesh of Christ more than the manna, amen? And it tells us very clearly that there is no need for us, church, to test God, to question God. No reason. He has proven himself in the person of Christ that he will, can, and it's guaranteed to sustain us, to overcome what he calls us to overcome. And so, therefore, we can stand, right, in these desert places, knowing victory is ours because it has been guaranteed there for us at his cross. Like the Israelite, God's clearly directing us with our faith in Jesus Christ. It's clear, even in suffering, he is at work, that he has a purpose, that he has a design. Amen? But like the Israelites, we are tempted. Even though he has proven his care and his love to us, we are tempted to test God, saying things like, Hey God, I won't question your care if you free me from this desert. I won't question your care if you free me from this wilderness wandering I'm in. Our flesh, and yes, the natural man's wisdom tempts us to go down this lane. Right? Natural wisdom says, I don't have to suffer. Natural wisdom says, I deserve security. Natural wisdom says, I deserve respect. Natural wisdom says, I deserve acceptance. Or in their case, I deserve a certain level of comfort. All of it's suffering. And godly wisdom birthed clearly for us, praise God, in the gospel, tells us suffering is part of our sanctification. Even as that suffering is the testing of our faith from godless, perverse, pluralistic society, as it was for the Israelites, right? That that suffering, even from those sorts of places, is for our good, for our sanctification. And we are here to receive the squeeze that happens in this life because we trust, right, that it is for our good. And so we can receive the squeeze even with joy that God is at work. This is certainly one reason why natural man's wisdom says the gospel, though, is foolish. Who would take joy in sufferings? Verse 10 gives us another reason why the Israelites were struck down. It says for complaining, for grumbling. As it says there in verse 10, don't complain as some of them did. Our tendency, our propensity, each one of us has a very natural inclination to blame and complain, to grumble. Can I get an amen on that? Okay. What do you grumble about? I was thinking about this. Right, what did they grumble about? Their situation and their leaders. They were done with this guy Moses, weren't they? How can we trust him? Look what he is willing to allow Clearly, because we have the benefit of the book, though, meaning us, right? Because we have the benefit of the scriptures, because we have the benefit of the book, we can come over the top of their complaints against Moses and say rather piously, well, clearly and ultimately, God was in charge and leading them, so their complaint is against God, right? We say that with quite a lot of confidence. And 
some pious attitude as well, right? Their complaint was against God, not Moses. Exactly. Hear it for us. This is the message to us. Exactly. It was against God. As we read the scriptures today, we understand that even our governing officials, those that don't know God, serve under his control, yet he remains in ultimate control. Let us hear this word this morning that we would be careful how we talk even about our leaders. We shouldn't curse them, name call them, make fun of them. We're called to pray for them, not to grumble about the state they put us in. For God is in charge of that, right? They don't have power to put us in something that God doesn't want us in. Amen? God, with his sovereign eye and hand, had planned and placed Moses. Their grumbling and complaining ignored the fact that God was in control of their situation. The situation was not an obstacle to their sanctification. It was part of their sanctification. We see at the end of verse 10 what happened as a result of their complaining and grumbling. They were killed by the destroyer. Again, more killed. Killed by the destroyer. Cultivating, here they are, cultivating hearts for evil, being sexually immoral. Clear sins to all of most of us in here, I would say, right? But here we should take note in the passage that God also puts in this list this idea of grumbling and complaining. And he kills people for it. That is a very serious consequence. Okay? I thought we were in the New Testament. Right? Lest we think this is some exaggeration by Paul or should be applied to those who live in Old Testament time, he says again, as he did in verse 6, he says here, verse 11, very clearly, look there, these things happened. Why? As examples... And they're written, why? For our instruction on whom the ends of the ages has come. We learn from their mistake. So we don't do the same thing in our lives. The same God that lived then lives today. The same God that judged then judges still today. And yet here at the end of the age we have Christ. So all the more, those who identify with him are without excuse. I think that's the heartbeat of the passage there. We are without excuse. He has disciplined in the past through death, and he will, what this is saying, he will discipline through death again. In fact, we see that over in chapter 11. His ultimate judgment is closer. Here's what this is saying. His ultimate judgment is closer now than it's ever been. Increasing, church, the urgency of the warning that we're reading right here. And in verse 12, there is a gracious grab, I would call it. A gracious grab. For those who, up to this point in the letter, and all these little points here, in these few verses we've just looked over, there's this gracious grab, grabbing, trying to grab the attention of those who are dismissing the warning up to this point. Who have thought everything up to this point right, so far in the sermon or in the letter, was about their neighbor, right? And he says, right, to all those who are like, hey, that's not me, <laughs> to all those who are like, hey, that's not going to happen, he layers on, hoping to awaken those who checked out, saying, so whoever thinks he stands must be careful not to fall. Whoever thinks he stands 
must be careful not to fall. As I paused here in the text, I asked the question, who tends to be people that think they stand? When do I tend to think I stand? And I think there's a lot of ways to look at that, but one thing that stuck out to me was, is what came right before. <laughs> when I'm grumbling and complaining, what do I think? I think I stand, right? Otherwise, I wouldn't be grumbling and complaining. Right? Think of the person who's grumbled and complained. They're doing so because they believe their standing justifies their complaining it, right? A good number of Israelites were killed by the destroyer because they grumbled against Moses and Aaron. We see in the first four chapters here in the letter to the church in Corinth that they were going, this church was going down this road. When it came to complaining against leadership, there was rivalry and grumbling going on. And leadership is easy to complain about, isn't it? I'm actually presently, pleasantly surprised at how so many in here are willing to faithfully follow and trust. It's very convicting, actually. It, it puts me and the other elders smack dab in front of God, meaning there is a fear of God that stirs in me when people infirm and a courage as opposed to grumble and complain. It's sad, isn't it, how easy it is for us to set our hearts against someone or a situation. It's easy when you're arrogant to assume you would do things better. It's easy to assume that you would make more discerning decisions, that you would care better, that you would be more merciful, that you would find a better path. It's easy to look at a leader and see where they're dropping the ball and think, man, I wouldn't drop the ball like that. And maybe you wouldn't. Well, what I have learned is that you'd probably drop the ball in another area. The point here isn't to say that we shouldn't question or can't question leaders. The fact is our leaders must commend ourselves. We must commend ourselves before God to your conscience. The point here is to address in the text the sinful grumbling attitude that misrepresents God and divides his people, which is why he kills them for it. Here's what we need to wrestle with, I think, that could be helpful moving forward. Did God place you here or not? Did God place these people around you for your good or not? Is God sovereign over your situation you're in? Is he sovereign over the people you're around, those that govern you, those that lead you? If I think yes, then I will humbly come under him and entrust myself to him in the situation. Right, Believing that the situation is not that I'm in is not an obstacle to my sanctification, but it's for my sanctification. If I think no, I will look at my situation with an arrogant confidence and think I deserve something different, that I have a right to something different, that I don't deserve this hunger strike the Lord has me on. I don't deserve this same cycle, this routine. That was their complaint, those Israelites, wasn't it? I mean, many of us are bothered just reading about their experience, specifically when we learned they ate pretty much the same thing every day, right? We don't like to eat the same thing, you know, twice in one week, right? And so they grumbled, right? And what they're saying is, hey, we've put up with enough already. We've endured enough. They thought they had standing, and they ended up falling. They thumbed their noses at God. I'm done with this. And these things were written, church, so we don't have the same response as they did. 
So whoever thinks they stand must be careful not to fall. Christians can understand the doctrine of depravity very well. Quick to wax eloquent about their depravity. But are only able to speak about it in its general application. But when you begin, when you begin to talk about it at the street level, and you begin to say things like to someone that, that seems to understand their depravity, and your, your response is, yes, yes, your depravity is true. And you say to them, and here's how it's true for you. Here's some particular areas and failures in your life. Let's take a look at some of your worst sins. It's here people squirm. Even the one who... And, and right now, I, I hear you what you're saying. You're thinking, well, goodness, if you say it like that, of course they would squirm. Let's take a look at your worst sins. But will you hear it? Should that cause us to squirm? Right? Even the one who claims Christ? Right? Only if they're moving away from the cross. Right? You see, we get comfortable speaking of sin in general terms when we get into the church, don't we? We talk about sin quite a bit. We have classes on it where we cover it. What is sin? What is depravity? We get comfortable as Christians speaking of sin in general terms and in a group format. Not, uh, not personal application of the doctrine. We don't want to be personally exposed And so we present and believe we are righteous, we stand. Instead of, if I stand, I stand on his promises, it's, I stand because I'm not like him. Or, I stand because I'm not the worst. In fact, I stand because I'm a relatively common sinner, no better than anyone else, but certainly not the worst. And so, I stand. It's so easy, isn't it, for you and I to be self-righteous? It's so easy for us to think we stand. And we perpetuate this by talking about other sins, highlighting other sins, and by talking generally about our sin. But being preoccupied with sin in this way What does it do, church? Will you hear this warning this morning? Being preoccupied with sin in this way, it makes us less aware of our own sin, causing us to think we stand. We should never be so self-assured. Did you hear that? Please receive that. It may be helped to write it down because that is in direct opposition of our culture. That is in direct opposition of any advice you would receive and wisdom you would receive from this godless culture. We should never be, Christian, so self-assured. Christian should not be, let me say it again, Christian should not be self-assured in this way. What should we be then? Well, we should be cross-assured. There at the cross that I'm preoccupied, what am I preoccupied? What am I preoccupied with? If I'm cross-assured, well, there at the cross, I'm preoccupied with my sin, right? That's what got me there. (laughs) I'm seeing it and seeing it and all the worst things about it. 
And I'm seeing to it that all my worst is laid there at the cross. That's why I come to it. And I would confess in that moment there at the cross, I'm the worst and I stand, right? I stand because I stand on the promises of the gospel. One of the most powerful ways we protect ourselves from self-righteousness and spiritual blindness is faithfully to commit to the sons and daughters of Christ. One of the most powerful ways we protect ourselves from thinking we stand, right, and falling is to commit ourselves to His church so that people can know us. And then the ones that know us best can speak to our blindness the best. And we've even spoke to this moments ago when we presented those for membership. You know, in my experience here over the last nine plus years, what grieves me is how often we see people visit the church for six months or a year, some join, some not, some are here longer, but then they learn, hey, these people are going to hold me accountable. For example, these people are going to hold me accountable for sexual standards. And so as they learn that, they become aware of that, and we press in, they leave. Why? Well, they don't need to hear that from us because they've already heard from the Lord. Or we say, hey, you've got to stop living with your girlfriend or you've got to share your sin addiction to porn with your wife and replace that addiction by walking in the grace you've been given in Christ and we'd like to help you with that. But they don't need to hear that, right? Because they think they stand. You see where I'm going? And what do they do? Well, they tell us, Hey, they, they don't need to process it like that. They've already heard from the Lord how to deal with it, and so they take off. They don't want that level of accountability. They like to talk generally about human depravity. They like to say they're not as bad as so-and-so in certain areas, but stay away from that area. They think they stand. And there are other areas that maybe aren't as clear, and it takes several years and this is why I say one of the most powerful ways, church, that you, individual Christian, that you protect yourself from self-righteousness and spiritual blindness is by faithfully committing yourself to a local church is because it could take several years of relationship where you get to know and see one another and then are able to speak clearly and more plainly and even more honestly into each other's life. But sadly, as this starts to happen, many people run. I don't need to hear from you what I've already heard from the Lord. I think more often that not, than not, when people are saying that, it's a lie from the pit of hell. Why do I say that so aggressively? Because it's one of the primary ways we think we stand and end up falling. By shutting other believers out of our lives is a sign that you are on the fool's path and destruction, right, is in front of you. That's what this is saying. The warning that we have here in the text, if received, it is a comfort. It provides assurance. Look there at verse 13 and I'll read it. There's no temptation has come upon you 
accept what is common to humanity. But God is faithful, and he will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation he will also provide the way out so that you may be able to bear it. The comfort in the warning is that we, church, we don't have to pretend we stand. Right? I mean, isn't that freeing? You don't have to pretend you stand. Right? right? The, the, the cross has says worse, far worse things about you than anyone else could ever say about you. Right? And that was my point earlier. Right? Because you're coming there. What, like, it's your sins that nailed Christ to the cross. Why then, church, do we begin to walk away in this self-righteous attitude? We, don't we, need to live there at the foot of the cross, continuing to live in repentance of faith, laying our sins and our burdens there at Him, and He is ready and promises to receive them, to wash them, to restore us, to sustain us. And so we stand. We stand. Not because we're better than or we're not as bad as, but we stand because we stand on the promises of the gospel that are poured out to us there at the cross. And God is faithful, right? You will face temptation in this life. Allow that sin. Allow that sin in your life. Know that in that temptation, God is faithful to help you, make you stand. And those sins that you've fallen to, allow that sin to be exposed for what it is, Christian, this morning. You've fallen. You say, well, I've been around the church and everybody thinks this about me. And so I just haven't come clean on this issue, right? Because I've just hidden it too long. And I want to tell you this morning, man, no, let it be exposed. You're in good company. Right? We're all sinners finding all the grace we need right there at the cross. <laughs> come. Come. Don't stop coming. The guide to trouble in the church is not to make the same mistakes our ancestors made. By cultivating appetites for evil, instead cultivate an appetite for good things. And God, who is faithful, will enable you to stand up under the weight of temptation's appeal. And the power of Christ. He doesn't leave us out there alone. And that's why I have hope. And that's why you have hope. Right? We don't have to walk out of here beat up. Let it be exposed. Come to the Christ. Be forgiven and then walk in that forgiveness. Every day, it's repentance and faith. I don't got to pretend to be the man I'm not. Because I have the righteous robes of Christ that were given to me anyway, right? Let's pray. The righteousness I have is a gift. Heavenly Father, and the righteousness any of us have, it is a gift we confess this morning that we did not earn it. And so help us, help us just to be honest. Help us to be honest this morning with this very truth and help us to find it refreshing and comforting knowing that since we did not earn it, we do not have to, to, to live and pretend that we are 
somebody other than who we are. Because there at forgiveness, there at the cross is forgiveness. There at the cross is restoration. And there is power in your name. And you give us your power. As we look to you by faith, you will give us the power we need to take on the transformation you are demanding from us. You would not demand or ask something from us that we could not, by faith in you, produce. There you are actively bringing it forth from us. As we put our hope and faith in you. You are the one holding us together and sustaining us. So as we look to you in the midst of a temptation or sin. God we can count on you making a stand. So we can see victory. As we journey through this desert land. Help us Jesus. Humble us so that we are willing to receive the help from the brothers and sisters that we need. Let us, none of us, let none of us continue to hide or cover our sin. Just to let it be exposed. Not pretending. But being exposed there at the cross. Nothing to hide. Not even from our brothers and sisters here. That we might be more mature and found faithful. In Jesus' name, amen.